lakes around here. That isn't a lake. It's an inkblot. Ah, and here, this is Sintra, is that right? Yes, south of the Trance River in Sodden. This way here flows the River Yuruga flowing into the sea right at Sintra. That country, I don't know if you know, is now dominated by Nilfgaardians. I do know. I know very well. And where is this Nilfgaard? I can't see a country like that here. Doesn't it fit on this map of yours or what? Get me a bigger one. Hmm, I don't have any maps like that, but I do know that Nilfgaard is somewhere further towards the south. There, more or less there, I think. So far, they've come all the way from there, and on the way conquered all those other countries. Yes, that's true. They conquered Metina, Mekt, Natsair, Ebbing, all the kingdoms south of the Amal Mountains. Those kingdoms like Sintra and Upper Sodden, the Nilfgaardians now call the provinces. But they didn't manage to dominate Lower Sodden, Verdun, and Bruges. Here in the Yoruga, the armies of the four kingdoms held them back, defeating them in battle. As usual, Sapkowski loves to troll his readers. As expressed in the quote there, the maps he drew do not go far south enough to include Nilfgaard, though maps from the games do include it. The underlying point, however, is that Nilfgaard is huge, has aimed to be huger for some time now, and has largely succeeded in that quest for hugeness. Huger and hugeness. Love it. Uh, welcome to the podcast, a surprise, everyone. This is a special episode, and we will be presenting our first ever fully scripted Witcher episode. So you'll see us taking on many different characters and kind of taking over different parts. Yeah, this this episode's 99% spoiler-free. Technically, there are a few quotes from later books, but they don't give anything away. They're just context or world-building, backstory, and because they're awesome. It's a very, very quotable series which, of course, is a hallmark of quality writing. In ancient times, after the conjunction of the spheres and the beginning of human civilization, a group of settlers established themselves in a region surrounding the Lower Alba River. Located near the southwestern portion of the continent, the country and its capital were soon dubbed Nilfgaard, and these humble beginnings, the one small settlement grew into the greatest power in the known world. The rise was out of work of centuries. It started slowly as Nilfgaard began sending tendrils of their power outward to control the immediate area around the river. Slowly but inexorably, they expanded their dominance toward the north. How and why did the people of the Lower Abel rise to dominate the nearby region and eventually threaten all of the lands of the north? We cannot know all of the reasons, but we know enough to paint a rich picture. It appears highly likely that the settlements in the continent's southern region began to flourish well before those in the north, most likely for a very straightforward reason, because the southern regions were settled first. While the elder races still ruled in the north and the wilds were overrun with beasts and monsters, humans were building settlements, villages, and even towns. That the far south was successfully settled so much earlier seems to be partially confirmed by the apparent greater sophistication found in the present day. The known histories likely confirm this as well as they report the North was founded relatively recently as far as human expansion is concerned. In the voice of reason, Geralt tells Dandelion that something is changing, that his profession is slowly dying. And as more and more the land is tamed, he says there are fewer and fewer monsters that are threatening the people living there, and thus less and less need for those who ply their trade in killing those monsters. We know that the species of dragon has fled even farther north to evade humanity, and this may be true for other species as well. In general, the larger the human settlement, the more distant the monsters are, with an exception or two 
as we learn in Eternal Flame. Novigrad is the largest city in the known world, at least according to Dandelion, who we know has traveled pretty extensively. This would imply it has a greater population than Nilfgaard, but Novigrad is a free city and not an entire country. So even if the capital of Nilfgaard is smaller in population, we can only assume that the country itself is much larger. Size and power are not always correlated, but these two traits could not be more clearly linked in Nilfgaard. The country's story is a story about dominance. The earliest known histories claim that Nilfgaard has influenced or outright controlled its neighbors since it was established. As we look back what we can deduce of the earliest days, however, the true story of the people of the lower Alba region may be much more complicated. The southern lands seem to have seen human ascendancy of the sort of the Witcher describes sooner than the north in the grand timeline of history. The south is thus a place where the wilderness is tamer, where the recurring theme that humans can be a bigger danger than monsters is clearer and more present. And indeed, there are many, many human monsters in Nilfgaard. The City of Golden Towers Asireva Anahid rose and went to the window. She stared out at the setting sun glistening on the roofs and towers of Nilfgaard, the capital of the empire, called the City of Golden Towers. As this quote indicates, the grand sobriquet, the City of Golden Towers, originates from the sunlight shining on the grand city's many roofs. No doubt many throughout the world believe it to be a literal statement, though, that the towers in the heart of mighty Nilfgaard are made of real gold. Nilfgaard is in no rush to correct that error. In reality, there doesn't seem to be much gold involved in these constructions now or in the nation's early days. And given that Nilfgaard wasn't birthed as an imperial capital, there likely weren't any towers at all until much later in their history. Indeed, the city had more modest beginnings, gradually growing into the dominant symbol that it is today. We say there likely weren't any towers in Nilfgaard because it is possible that they might have existed at that time. But if those towers stood in the early days of human history here, they were built by other hands. The first human settlers began with simpler homes that promised survival, not grandeur. But they also repurposed abandoned structures left by other races and even took some by force. There are two major related reasons to suspect that Golden Towers refers to a structure or structures that predate human settlement. Firstly, consider the title Phil Evandril claims in The Edge of the World, or rather the title he once claimed, Phil Evandril of the Silver Towers. Phil Evandril is an elf of the Ain Shi descent, and the Silver Towers may have been the name of the capital of Dol Blathana, the former elven kingdom of the north, though it is perhaps a very human attitude to place gold over silver in value, it's not hard to imagine that if there were once silver towers, there were golden towers as well that stood perhaps as a greater power than the others. If so, it could follow that the Ain Shi, these potentially golden tower elves, saw themselves as superior to their northern counterparts who lived in silver towers or around them. The second potential proof is that we know for a certainty that there were elves in the lower Alba region as well. Elves who had a similar name to the Ain Shi, the Black Shi. They're descended from the Black She, and everyone knows it. Elven blood flows through their veins, the blood of elves. Human kingdoms in the north are rife with prejudice against the elder races, and the elder races often feel the same way in return, but without the safety of the majority to institutionalize their opinions. The gradual decline of the elven race in the north is well known, and though humans and elves often live at peace throughout the various cities and settlements of the region, there remains substantial enmity dating back centuries. 
It seems that elf-human relations were significantly different in the South. Rather than shunning elven connections, Nilfgaard is proud to claim descent from the Black She. Rather than rejecting much of Elvis' culture, they seem to have embraced it. We have evidence that the Nilfgaardian language is rooted in Elvish, as is Nilfgaardian prophecy. He was a Nilfgaardian knight. When he issued orders, he spoke the common speech fluently, but with a marked accent, similar to that of the elves. However, he spoke with his squire in a language resembling the elder speech, but harder and less melodious. It had to be Nilfgaardian. Assimilation between elves and humans in the southern regions thus took an entirely different course, one where elven-human marriages may have not just been tolerated, but encouraged. That said, this is speculation, but something has to explain the cultural overlap with Nilfgaard and elvish culture. Still, there's much we don't know of the Black She and their current status either. If they are a distinct cultural group in current times, we don't know of it, and the history of this connection could, sadly, be much darker than peaceful integration. One way or another, we can speculate that ancient Nilfgaardian pride in part emanate from merging with or dominating an elder race, an unprecedented accomplishment for a human nation. It's also important to note that Nilfgaard is not without their own kind of prejudice. It's simply that their elvish blood and cultural anchorings have them looking down at human civilizations that they deem inferior, which is all of them. It is Nilfgaard the neighbor whom one has to take into account. When it comes to the birth of nations, we don't get to choose our neighbors. But Nilfgaard did choose to conquer theirs, seeing them as lesser. Many of these countries have been dominated by Nilfgaard for so long that many of their own customs have long since vanished in favor of those first practiced in the Lower Alba region. Yet though they seek to make one nation of the continent, only those born in the region of the Lower Alba have the distinction of being known as true Nilfgaardians. As we've heard a character or two say in a variety of ways, if you're from a conquered province, you're not Nilfgaardian. Given this disdain for other human cultures and their long history of domination by any means necessary... It's unsurprising that slavery is found in Nilfgaard. For example, during war, we've seen them use slave labor for military purposes. But many were not able to escape. The Nilfgaardian light cavalry were hunting them, cutting them off. Do you know why? I don't. I don't understand. I don't know much about warfare, Dandelion. They wanted prisoners. Slaves. They wanted to catch as many people as possible. That is the cheapest workforce in Nilfgaard. That's why they were so focused on hunting refugees. It was a big hunt for people, Geralt. An easy hunt. Because the army was routed and no one defended the poor. No one? Almost no one. At an unknown time in its history, the city of Nilfgaard, perhaps using slave labor, established a port at the southernmost point of its realm called Bakala. In current times, it is known for its shipbuilding as well as trade. This and other early growth and expansion saw the city eventually become the kingdom of Nilfgaard. The spoils of sustained conquest provided long-term wealth that was invested into the capital city, growing the city in power and adding to its capacity and desire for further conquest. To many in Nilfgaard, it will all be ruled from the city of Golden Towers eventually, from dominating neighbors to dominating those far away. It seems likely that this attitude of superiority has been present for quite some time. The Eternal Empire. Three years ago, Nilfgaard disturbed a small stone on the mountainside. And now they are calmly waiting for an avalanche. They can simply wait while new stones keep pouring down the slope. And since it turned out that a mere touch sufficed to set it rolling, others appeared for whom an avalanche would prove convenient. This is war. 
war on a grand scale. Civil war, domestic, our own. While Nilfgaard waits, whose side do you think time is on? Whether their position on the Alba gave Nilfgaard wealth beyond its neighbors, whether ancient political successes or simple good fortune gave it long-standing advantages, one thing lies at the heart of Nilfgaard's enduring dominance, the Nilfgaardian military. How the military was used or how the nation functioned in general in earlier times is not well known, but in the timeline of the Witcher series, military culture is the dominant trait that defines the empire. In the year 1135, or perhaps a bit earlier, Imperator Torres Var Emrys overthrew the Senate and established himself as the first emperor. History fans might recognize this move from examples like Octavian, a.k.a. Augustus Caesar, and Star Wars fans will find Palpatine, a former senator himself, doing the same thing. Back then, the title Imperator was a military title and indicated the position of supreme commander. Given that, it's not difficult to imagine how Imperator Torres was able to overthrow the Senate. That's right, by force. Not the force, just regular force. Perhaps only the threat of violence was necessary for the coup to be successful, but either way, the change from the previous form of government, whatever it was exactly, to the sole rule of an emperor proved to be a lasting one. Nilfgaard has been an empire ever since, and the Emrace dynasty has ruled it until current times, minus a 20-year or so period that will be familiar to book readers. If we're looking for comparisons on a meta level, we can stick with names we've used already. Nilfgaard has a lot in common with the Roman Empire and the Third Reich and the Galactic Empire of Star Wars. Of course, some of these parallels overlap, given that the Third Reich was a major influence on George Lucas when he created the Galactic Empire, what with its stormtroopers and all. Though we don't want to make assumptions, Sapkowski himself was born in 1948, the year the Communist Party came to full power in his home country of Poland. This was, of course, just after World War II, in which Poland itself was cut in half by Stalin and Hitler. The Nazis were mostly kicked out, but the communists kept a brutal hold on power until 1989, a mere three years after the very first Witcher short story was written. Had things gone just a little bit differently, we might not ever have gotten those stories at all. Aesthetically, there are also similarities. The Galactic Empire, accepting some types of storm- stormtroopers, dressed its ranks in all or nearly all black uniforms. Ditto the Third Reich, including their stormtroopers. Likewise, the Nilfgaardian military are known to wear all or almost all black. Often, we see them called the Black Cloaks by those in the north of the continent. This is true even off the battlefield as well. In current times, the following scene takes place at court. That morning on Loch Grimm, no youth was present. They had no place here. The great throne room was filled by serious and stern magnates, squires and knights, all dressed in ceremonial court black, like one man, refreshed only by white collars and cuffs. The men were accompanied by equally serious and stern ladies whom customs allowed to decorate their black dresses with jewellery. All showed dignity, seriousness, and strictness. But in truth, they were incredibly excited. (laughs) This rigid control is reflected in other aspects of their society. Despite their closer ties to the elves who bequeathed magic to humanity in the first place, Nilfgaard keeps a tight hold over its sorcerers. It is consistent with Nilfgaard's concentration of imperial power. Magical power residing with individuals is a threat to that hierarchy. Sorcerers in Nilfgaard are treated about the same as, let's say, stablemen, and they have no more power than stablemen either. 
At one point, Emperor Emhir issues a horrible punishment on a magic user for a divination that was actually accurate, but could not be proven as such. For as many similarities as Nilfgaard has to evil empires of fiction and real history, the national culture also holds certain high values that we would share today. Take education for one, or at least martial education. Nilfgaard, speaking of the capital here, boasts an imperial military academy supported by the greatest families of Nilfgaard, both financially and culturally. Careers in the military are extremely common for the highborn, but students are provided with far more academic rigor and discipline than one would perhaps expect in a fantasy setting. They learn swords, armor, bows, axes, horses, yes, but they also learn to read. Not every foot soldier, perhaps, but every officer, and most likely before and most likely before they begin what we think of as military training. After all, this is an academy. Literacy is well beyond the basic expectation for admittance, one would think, even in the largely illiterate world of the Witcher. Gender equality is also valued in Nilfgaard, and it is the norm in the military after Imperator Fergus decreed that the army would have absolute gender equality, with no exceptions. And while class certainly matters, merit allows the lower-born to rise through ranks. In one famous scene, a young baron is seen being reprimanded thoroughly and embarrassingly in front of his class for failing to recall the name the Battle of Brenna, despite his very high rank. An impressive last name is not an easy path to golden glory in Nilfgaard. Anyone, more or less, can rise based on their actions. But by the same metric, anyone can also fall. Attending a military academy means learning military history, tactics and logistics, advanced discipline, and leadership. Knighthood does exist in the Empire, but as a social class, not a professional rank. To understand Nilfgaard, one must think less of the ancient world and more of warfare and culture of recent centuries. For example, the first military academy in our world was founded in Italy, but not by the Romans, not even close. Savoy Military Academy was founded in 1678 in Turin. Now, we can't know what the shape and organization of the Nilfgaardian military was like in far gone times. As things stand now, though, their forces are characterized by what we would recognize today as modern philosophies, organizational tactics, rankings, and attitudes. To emphasize this, Sapkowski borrows military terminology sourced not from the ancient or medieval or even Gothic periods, but from current times. Instead of simple infantry and cavalry, though those terms are used in the Witcher novels as well, the forces of Nilfgaard boast army groups, operations groups, battle groups, brigades and divisions, tactical companies, and regiments. In our world, the use of brigades didn't begin until the 1400s, and the first use of divisions in a military context was the year 1792. Meanwhile, we're pretty sure operations group is a 20th century phrase. Ditto, tactical company. This is further reflected in the military titles used, such as field marshal and colonel. These are not terms used in the ancient times in the real world, nor elsewhere on the continent that we know of. So that's what we can say about hard power, the sharp and pointy blade that Nilfgaard wields today. When a terrifyingly sophisticatedly <laughs> and large militarily wasn't impressive enough, the Nilfgaardian state has another and possibly even more powerful apparatus at its disposal, a spy network. Used for everything from the assassination of enemy heads of state to the funding, incitement, or brutal suppression of rebellions, the Nilfgaardian Intelligence Service is perhaps best compared to the infancy... <laughs> The Nilfgaardian intelligence service is perhaps best compared to the infamous agencies of the 20th century, such as the CIA or KGB. That said, the members of the Nilfgaardian intelligence are molded in a distinctly fantastical, fanatical process, or at least we hope it's fantastical. Spies are generally taught from birth to be loyal. To put it more bluntly, they are indoctrinated in Nilfgaardian values, forged into true arms of the state in a way rarely seen elsewhere on the continent, and all this from a very early age. 
Nilfgaard's extensive trade network creates synergy with their military and spy services. This doesn't just give them access to secrets of state. It means they have cutting-edge information on weapons and technologies we've not seen elsewhere. It's called an Orion, an invention from overseas. I've been practicing for over a month and scoring almost every time. Could be useful. In the range of 30 meters, such a star is deadly, and in addition to that, it can be easily hidden in a glove or hat. Nilfgaardian special forces have been using them since last year. Attentive, interested readers might note this passage as a hint from the author that Nilfgaard is open to and even welcomes technological innovation. Many real-world and fictional militaries have lost by failing to keep up with the times, so this is notable both for Nilfgaard's own sake and as a contrast between Nilfgaard and the other powers of the continent. Another factor in their favor, the forces of Nilfgaard are also terrifying in their sheer numbers. At some point in their history, a Nilfgaardian Imperial Guard was established called the Impera Brigade. They alone number some 5,000 men. If there are 5,000 soldiers tasked exclusively with guarding the Emperor, how many soldiers must the Empire have in total? Thankfully, we can't actually do that math, as there's no clear answer to this question and the number would fluctuate over time, but it's a lot. Vastly more than any single nation in the Northern Kingdoms can field even in an army, much less in a single protective unit. Given the presumed many soldiers and settlers, one can estimate that, geographically speaking, Nilfgaard is not a small nation at its core. This aligns with our belief that they had some sort of territorial advantage over their neighbors, such as large tracts of fertile land to support an expansive population. There's certainly enough room for the Emperor to have a summer palace called Lot Grimm, as we saw, overlooking a lake of the same name. This, of course, is in addition to the main imperial palace in the city of Golden Towers itself. But back to the army. Among the many practical implications of such a grand and expansive military is the presumption of wealth. Someone or something has to pay for all those soldiers, horses, food, weapons, barracks, training, uniforms. The list goes on. Here, Sapkowski's strong background in economics comes into play as he neatly sets the stage for an empire that can financially support itself in-world, and on a meta level, can support itself logistically as well. How? Well, as a nation built largely on conquest, Nilfgaard is armed with mercantile industries that are as widespread as they are aggressive. Resources are often prioritized over the well-being of those who mine, refine, and make those resources usable, especially given that Nilfgaard is more than happy to replace dead locals with settlers from their existing established regions, people who are already loyal to the empire, in other words. These mercantile interests bring great wealth into the capital, a portion of which is taxed and thereby appropriated by military interests, and so the wheel turns. Resources to the capital, taxes to the army, the army expands, and in turn can appropriate more resources. Again, this structure functions more like a modern corporation than anything from the ancient world, complete with stocks and shareholders and all that. Shareholders in Nilfgaardian companies are paid dividends in florins, which is the official currency of the empire. And the current state of Nilfgaard's economic structure is likely a result of changes made in the relatively recent imperial era. It is not known how long Emperor Taurus ruled, but context implies that his was a lengthy reign featuring a variety of reforms and changes. Not surprising for a nation morphing from what seems to have been some kind of constitutional monarchy into an empire. Amongst the changes brought by Emperor Torres is an apparent increase in the power of the cult of the Great Sun. The term cult perhaps sends the wrong message at it's an organization more known for the politics than dogma, though it does not lack for the latter. 
Given the sun's position above everything, how it goes about dictating weather and life as we know it, the sun has been a symbol of power for as long as humankind has been using symbols. Heck, it even has a day named after it. How about that? <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> Beyond that, sun worship provides us with another strong parallel to the Roman Empire, which featured worship for a time of Sol Invictus, which means the unconquered sun. And since so much of the world uses calendars made or remade by Rome, we can thank them for the name Sunday. And the Emperor Constantine for designating it a day of rest. Thanks, Constantine. In Nilfgaard, the increased power of the church, of the great sun, then and now opens the door to the possibility of fanaticism. Given the already potent mix of military might and enforced loyalty to the state, the addition of religious zealotry made the socio-political situation in Nilfgaard particularly dangerous, even unstable. In the early to mid-1230s, Imperator Fergus Var Emrace was overthrown by a man known to history as the Usurper. It is said that the usurper tortured Fergus to force him into acknowledging his own overthrow as legitimate, even going so far as to torture Fergus's heir M here as well. In what we might recognize as a generational stubbornness, though, Fergus's resolve was such that he died before breaking and never acknowledged the usurper's usurpation. The usurper was overthrown and executed by Emery's supporters in 1257, and Amir ascended to the throne taken from his father Fergus so long ago. Though not stated, we suspect that Amir had the Church of the Great Son on his side as the clergy had lost power under the usurper, but began to regain it as he overthrew it. Now invested as emperor, Emir immediately began the process of purging those who had supported the now nameless Imperador with the same diligent thoroughness that so effectively erased the usurper's name from history. And he did it with a particular style, using their gravestones to pave the floor of his ballroom and thus literally dance on the graves of his enemies. But a floor made of gravestones is the least of it. The usurper was probably lucky in a sense to have been killed by Emrace's supporters and not Emir himself, as the latter is known to be a bit more brutal. And vindictive. Yeah. One indication of this is <laughs> that we don't know the usurper's real name. Any record of it was scrubbed from history. Quite a feat given he ruled for over 20 years and added several new territories to imperial rule. Erasing traitors from history may be a Nilfgaardian tradition, though, or perhaps one established by the erasure of the usurper, as this quote from the time of the main series hints at. The Supreme Court of the Eternal Empire, by the grace of the Great Sun, finds you guilty of crimes and abuse of which you were charged. As a traitor to your homeland of Nilfgaard, you are unworthy to tread upon its ground. You will be laid on a wooden skid and dragged by horses to Millennium Square. As a traitor to his homeland of Nilfgaard, you are unworthy to breathe the air. You will be hanged by the neck on the gallows between heaven and earth. So you will stay there until you die. Then your body will be cremated, and the ashes scattered to the winds on the four sides of the world. I, the chairman of the Supreme Court of the Empire, sentence you, and this is the last time I will speak your name. From now on, let it be forgotten. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
War and expansion. Indeed, it's a subject which belongs to the so-called interminable category. There's been talk about wars in the past. There is talk now, and there always will be. And not without reason. There have been wars, and there will be wars. If we'd like to look deeper into Nilfgaardian expansion in the Imperial era, the fate of the nation of Ebbing gives us an illustrative example. Ebbing was annexed by Nilfgaard in 1239, early in the reign of the Usurper, and though the nation appears to be self-governed, it is in reality a vassal state entirely reliant on its conqueror. The chains are invisible, but they are very real. Ebbing's a notable location in the series as it contains Claremont, Jealousy, Dundare, Unicorn, the Paraplut Marshes, and Stiga Castle. Characters from Ebbing include Calanthe's first husband slash series grandfather, King Rogner, as well as Hoovenagel, Bonhart, and Kaylee. Perhaps that richness in story opportunities, if not standard resources, was why the usurper sought to conquer Ebbing. He certainly used it as a base to launch attacks even further north, and that also created more stories. Conquests continued in 1263, six years after the House of Emrys had regained the Imperial throne. Nilfgaard began another ambitious series of conquests under Emperor Emhir with the goal of subjugating as many lands north of the Yoruga as possible. But in order to expand further north, the remainder of the lands south of the Yoruga would need to be taken first, most notably Sintra. That would be no easy feat, even for the might of Nilfgaard. Sintra sits at a powerful position in control of the Mount of the Aruga and Sodden, which is bisected by the Great River. There is some slightly confusing terminology here, as Upper Sodden is on the south side of the river, while Lower Sodden is on the north side. It's even more confusing when you learn that Sodden Hill, which sounds like a high place, is part of Lower Sodden, which is, again, the north side of the river. Secretly, we suspect that part of Nilfgaard's motivation was to rename these locations more intuitively. <laughs> if so, it's the only part of Nilfgaard's justification for war that we agree on. Hashtag make the names make sense. <laughs> Sapkowski. <laughs> <laughs> Trolling again. Sintra's immediate neighbor to the south is the kingdom of Nazir. The two kingdoms used to have very close relations. In fact, the first king of Sintra from the House of Raven married Becca of Nazir. However, Queen Calanthe's grandfather, King Corbett, managed to sever their long friendship through misrule. As Nilfgaard conquered its way northwards, Natsair inevitably wound up next on the chopping block. The kingdom fell after what was described as a cruel and difficult conquest. The capital, Asengard, was sacked, desolated, and never repopulated. Despite this, there remained free factions among the Nazari, specifically highland clans with few ties to the capital. These clans were never subjugated and caused trouble for the empire to this day via raids and refusal to submit to Nifgardian authority. At one point, the Highlanders and nobles of Nazir, two groups who were not normally on the best of terms, allied to rebel and throw off the Nilfgaardian yoke. Sadly, their attempt was brutally crushed by the Nilfgaardian Major General Marcus Brabant. Nazir and Sintra are separated by two major geographical features. First is the Erlenwald Forest, yes, as in Urchin of Erlenwald, as in the region where Dooney encountered King Rogner, saved his life, and claimed the Law of Surprise. Second is the Amel Mountains, a formidable range that contains only one passable route for an army, called the Marnadal Stairs. Thus, for Sintra to prevent an invasion from the south, they need only to hold the enemy in the pass. A smaller army could defeat a larger one in such circumstances. With Nazare as an independent kingdom, these twin defenses meant that invasion was rarely much of a threat to Sintra. But with Nilfgaard as their new neighbor, the nation <laughs> had to remain vigilant. The writing was on the wall. It was only a matter of time before the attempted invasion came. 
Indeed, the opening battle of the First Northern War was a clash between the Nilfgaardian forces commanded by Field Marshal Menno Cohorn and the Sintran army commanded by Queen Calanthe and King Consort Eisterseach less than 20 years later. As vividly portrayed in the Witcher TV series, any advantage provided by the pass through the Emil Mountains was insufficient to protect Sintra. The battle was a resounding victory for Nilfgaard with King Ice slain during the fighting. Queen Calanthe retreated back to the city with her surviving soldiers while Cohorn ordered his men to follow with all haste, quickly making their way through Erlenwald Forest towards the capital. Bleated of soldiers, Sintra was unable to hold its walls and gates. Nilfgaard gave no quarter to the city, brutally sacking it. Queen Calanthe committed suicide rather than be captured, and other members of the royal family were killed as well. But Sintra was not Asengard. As a wealthy city of real strategic value, Nilfgaard did not intend to leave it desolated and in ruins. So why was the order given for slaughter rather than fighting until the Sintrans surrendered? There are at least two reasons for the excessive violence. The first is that Field Marshal Cohorn was attempting to take as much territory as quickly as possible and didn't want to expand any of his men holding the city, especially as they likely calculated Sintra would not bend the knee so easily. Sintra's continued resistance later shows the truth of that, at least this part of Cohen's calculations were correct. Secondly, Nilfgaard has a long history of replacing a native population of a conquered area with their own settlers. Years ago, this village was called White River, but when the unrest began, some locals joined the rebels. Then the Varhagans of Sada put it to the torch, murdered the villagers and took them prisoner. Now only Nilfgaardian settlers live here, all newcomers. And the village has been renamed Glizwen. These settlers are a fierce, nasty people. It's true that it was unusual for a city's entire worth of people to be put to the sword, even at Nilfgaard's hands. But given that this slaughter was likely planned well in advance, they surely had a plan to repopulate the city lined up as well. It's clear that these orders didn't come just from the generals. This brutality was all the emperor's design. And as well, Nilfgaard is very practiced at conquest, after all. But they're not unbeatable. After Sintra, the Empire continued their lightning campaign of invasions and captured Upper Sodden after another battle. They proceeded to inflict the same devastation on Sodden that they had on Sintra. From Upper Sodden, Nilfgaard crossed the river into Lower Sodden. And remember, remember they're going north. <laughs> there. <laughs> <laughs> there they were confronted by an allied army consisting of soldiers from Redania, Temeria, Caedwin, and Adern, and 22 sorcerers of the Brotherhood. It was here that the famous Battle of Sodden took place a victory for the North, but one that was incredibly hard fought. And though the Nilfgaardians lost a great number of soldiers that the war ended, they kept their hold on their prizes. They captured territories of Sintra and Upper Sodden. As we saw in the short story Something More, which took place about a year after the battle, Geralt visited the site of the Battle of Sodden Hill and found the memorial to the Brotherhood's heroism where the names of 14 of the 22 sorcerers are inscribed. It turned out to be 13 deaths instead of 14, but that's another story. Those deaths, along with the thousands of soldiers from a variety of nations, are well remembered. It was brutal and tragic, but it did prove Nilfgaard could be beaten, even if at great cost. So now we, everyone from around here, take flowers there to that hill... And in May, at Beltane, a fire always burns, and it shall burn there forever and a day, and forever shall they be in people's memories, that fourteen, and living like that in memory is... is something more. More, Geralt, sir. Still, though Nilfgaard lost the battle and significant manpower, it's likely that the Emperor considered the campaign a success overall. Soldiers can be replaced. To an Emperor, the land is the true value. 
especially when you're confident no one is coming to reclaim it, hence all that slaughter. The other cynical truth of slaughtering a captured population is that they can't get revenge on their conquerors or reclaim the lands in which they are buried. But despite the overall victory, the emperor punished many of his subordinates for their failure anyway, angry that their success wasn't greater and that Nilfgaard's air of invincibility was shattered. And he began to shift much of his military operations to Sintra, preparing for the next invasion. The outlook was different now. The territory and opportunities of attack wide open. Nilfgaard's days of being squeezed through the Marnadal stairs was over. All this geography of yours hasn't led to anything yet. You're telling me about the Yaruga River, but the Nilfgaardians have, after all, already crossed to the other side once. What's stopping them now? Not much, Siri. Not much. With control of the south bank of the Yaruga, Nilfgaard has the ability to strike across from just about anywhere along the entire length of the river. That's a daunting amount of territory to defend. Normally, a big river is a huge defensive advantage, but that advantage is nullified if your enemy is able to cross in a spot you're not guarding or not guarding sufficiently. And while Nilfgaard's forces may seem unlimited, the populations of the fractured kingdoms beyond Sintra are anything but. That is the state of the affairs at the beginning of Blood of Elves. That's the story that starts with the dream of the fall of Sintra and the gathering under the great tree Bleobaris, a scene where many different characters speak, many if not most of whom fought at the Battle of Sodden Hill. All too well, they know what they're up against when it comes to Nilfgaard. It's clear to those gathered that the emperor isn't finished, that he's not satisfied with his gains to date, especially not with his position, even more advantageous than ever before. And these people know what's coming for them. They know what he will do to subjugated nations. There have been plenty of examples. Assimilation. In 1265, a year after something more and two years after the fall of Sintra, a rebellion began in Ebbing, expanded to Gesso and Macht. Eventually, even the Duke of Mecht himself, named Rudiger, led what became known as the Ebbing Confederation Insurrection, attempting to revoke the Nilfgaardian conquest of their lands. The rebellion grew particularly bloody and brutal and saw the formation of the infamous Jamerian pacifiers, mercenaries sent by Amir to end the uprisings through violence and terrorism. They were known for inflicting unspeakable acts on selected members of families while the remainder were made to watch. Trust me, it's even worse than it sounds. There's evidence... Nilfgaard uses their initial brutal tactics deliberately in order to encourage revolts, which in turn gives them the justification for the very slaughter that creates room for their own settlers. Hello? Is the Geneva Convention there? Hello? (laughs) Doesn't look like it, Mikau. No one's answering. Perhaps because Nilfgaard has such long experience with rebellions and uprisings, they also know how to incite them elsewhere. Though, as we saw with Sintra, it doesn't seem like they need much excuse to just violently put down a rebellion that doesn't even exist. Let's not forget Nilfgaard's connection to the non-human races when thinking on this subject as well. Racial animosity can be suborned in any direction, on any side, by a cynical and ambitious conqueror, especially one with such a wealth of resources. We are inundated with goods from Nilfgaardian manufactories. In Bruges and Verdun, their coin is ousting local currency. If we sit and do nothing, we will be finished. At odds with our neighbours, embroiled in conflict, tangled in trying to quell rebellions and riots, and slowly subdued by the economic strength of the Nilfgaardians. In general, they show a penchant for asymmetrical warfare of all kinds. Economic, political, religious, you name it. And of course, their potent intelligence service supports all of these endeavours. Through all these means, applied individually or in concert, countless communities have been devastated by Nilfgaardian expansion. There are an overwhelming number of examples where imperial conquest is akin to slaughter. 
Rarely, at least in recent history, does Nilfgaard seem to even try to rule over conquered peoples without first inflicting severe damage on the population. If you followed us here from A Song of Ice and Fire, what comes next will sadly be no surprise. Nilfgaard's overwhelming cruelty has the side effect of spawning traumatized, violent individuals who become numb to the violence they've witnessed. Think of Martin's broken men, but pushed far beyond just the poor bastards who are actually fighting. Here, even civilians become so damaged that many of them in turn inflict similar horrors on others. Often they band together in gangs where they cause even greater harm. The world of The Witcher wasn't short on war and violence even before Nilfgaard became an existential threat, but the advance of the Empire has sparked a new and even more awful cycle of suffering. There's never been a war like this, the Bard said gravely. The Nilfgaard army are leaving scorched earth and bodies behind them, entire fields of corpses. This is a war of destruction, Nilfgaard against everyone. Cruelty. There is and never has been a war without cruelty. You're exaggerating, Dandelion. It's like it is by the fairy. That's how it is normally done. A kind of military tradition, I'd say. As long as the world has existed, armies marching through a country plunder, burn, and rape, though not necessarily in that order. As long as the word has existed, peasants have hidden in the force with their women and what they can carry. When everything is over, return. Not in this war, Geralt. After this war, there won't be anybody or anything to return to. Nilfgaard is leaving smoldering embers behind it. The army is marching in a row and dragging everybody out. Scaffolds and stakes stretch for miles along the highway. Smoke is rising to the sky across the entire horizon. You said there hasn't been anything like this since the world has existed. <laughs> well, you were right. Since the world has existed. Our world for it looks as though the Nilfgaardians have come from beyond the mountains to destroy our world. This again reminds us of Rome or the Mongols under the Khans who would kill every living thing in a region and then call it peace, the peace of desolation. This is a major touchstone for a central theme in the Witcherverse we mentioned at the start, that humans can be much worse than monsters. In most cases, the differentiator is simply power and reach. A manticore might slay many, a vampire even more, and these are often horrific deaths, but they'll never order the slaughter and or enslavement on the scale of an emperor. Even McCall will admit Novellan's got nothing on him here. Fine, right, right. fine. <laughs> Tough but fair, huh? Still, while we're on the subject, what about actual monsters within Nilfgaard's borders? Earlier, we indicated there may be fewer monsters in Nilfgaard than elsewhere because large settlements drive most forms of monsters away, and the Nilfgaardian Empire has many large settlements. However, consider the reverse. When Nilfgaard's army is on the march, devastating communities and depopulating vast swaths of territory, they are doing many species of monster a big favor. These wars not only create monsters out of human survivors, but they create opportunities for the monsters that witchers are meant to hunt. A lesson that applies to the real world, perhaps. No matter how bad you think war is, it's worse. It's well known that monsters abound wherever armies have passed. The most money is always made in places like that. True, the neighborhoods grow deserted. Only women who can fend for themselves remain in the villages. Scores of children, no home or care, roaming around. Easy prey attracts monsters. That begs the question, what about witchers in Nilfgaard? There are other witcher schools on the continent besides the School of the Wolf. In book canon, we know of the Cat and Griffin schools, but it's likely there are or were others. It's by no means impossible there was one founded in the south, and one or more schools of witcher training may have existed in territories later conquered by Nilfgaard. That could have been very interesting. It's also possible that, given the tight hold on sorcerers, perhaps witchers are not allowed in Nilfgaard, or they are bound by heavy restrictions. 
I would guess that they're tolerated because, again, it's the matter of power. Mages are a threat to the rulers of Nilfgaard, or could be. Witchers, not really. Socially, there's not much reason to suggest that witchers are treated any differently by the citizens of Nilfgaard and its territories as compared to elsewhere, with prejudice, suspicion, ingratitude, the usual. Professionally, we'll have to call it an unknown whether or not witchers have free reign to hunt monsters in Nilfgaard. But later events in the books appear to show that it is not illegal for people to hunt witchers in Nilfgaard. So yeah, everyone, this is our Nilfgaard episode. We're going to be talking a lot more about Nilfgaard in the future, of course, probably with more spoilers as the years go along and hopefully we survive or there isn't more crazy pandemics that are worse than this one. Um, But uh, really, really awesome stuff. Episodes like this do take a good bit of effort to create and record and edit. Aziz is uh, very, very hardworking for that. So we appreciate him very much and all of his this awesomeness for being part of this podcast. If you'd like to see more episodes Mm -hmm. like this and or if you're consuming the pot of surprise on the regular, consider treating us like you treat any other business you frequent on the regular and join our elite group of pod supporters. You can do that on Anchor on uh, anchor.fm where you find the podcast surprise. You can uh, press the $1 button, the $5 button or the $10 button if you would like to throw us throw a coin to your podcasters, I guess you should say (laughs) as uh, I want to coin the term. (laughs) I guess I'll coin that coin that term ring coin that term. (laughs) Yeah, it hasn't been as frequent lately, guys. Sorry about that. I did have COVID for like a month, so that wasn't good. I'm actually surviving now. Yeah, our plan is one episode a month until there's a TV show again, and then we should be able to finish Blood of Elves before. We'll just have to take it as it comes. There's a lot more to come, though. A lot more fun things happening, so... So thanks to Maura Lee, Ryan B., School of the Cat, Rhett Crisman, Cat Ovivas, James Gannon, Lucas Mies, LC, Amy Lantrip, and Alejandro Martinez. Those are our current supporters as of 5-14-2022. Appreciate that, y'all, and we'll keep them coming. Yeah. Bye, guys. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye.